This is Bale Street. Crime, finance, and everything in between. Hosted by Ira Jettleson, bail bondsman to the stars, and Danny Moses of The Big Short fame, this is Bail Street. Welcome to Bail Street. I'm Danny Moses. I'm Ira Jettleson. Today, we have a great guest, Krishna Andabalu, who was actually calling in live from Tijuana, Mexico, following the actual caravan, not the fake one that has been <laughs> talked about crossing the border weeks ago. And uh, Krishna has been involved in many things, um, currently over at Vice Media. He's a producer, executive producer, an actor, a writer, director, um, really from a public policy perspective, has been on top of many issues, current issues, um, obviously started uh, early on cannabis reporting with his uh, series Weedicate, uh, which is, has filmed three seasons, I believe, right, Krishna? Um, That's right. Yep, we did three seasons. Thanks for calling me an actor. I don't think I've ever actually done any acting, but I'm certainly. On. What do you mean? I've 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 seen you in some of these episodes. I just saw you in the Road to Asylum on your current episode. I consider that acting. You making an appearance. You know, just because it's a documentary doesn't mean you're not uh, you're not in it, right? Yeah, just uh, because you're not in the set, you don't have a it, sad it card. Is, then, uh, specifically, it's it's not scripted i guess that's the way all I right put it. that's but fair anyway, it, it, i've tried acting and i'm not very good at it it's funny well you're young so you got time so with that i know we're going to jump around a little bit so tell us what you're doing right now in tijuana and uh, why it's so important that you're down there covering it yeah uh well so i'm uh, we're in tijuana we're the migrant caravan from central america um many of about three thousand of whom have, have come here right at the border of the united states the stated goal for some of them is try to get to the united states to claim asylum political asylum um and the city of Tijuana, which has long been a sort of play host to, mi- to migrants kind of in, a, in limbo, is, is reacting to the possibility of, of more people coming. Um, and it's becoming something of a political football, so to speak. So, so this, yeah, I mean, it's this... important to me because this is sort of a, a huge story of the moment uh, from the humanitarian point of view. And in a certain, another way, an even bigger story as far as how it's being leveraged in politics, both in the United States, but also here in Mexico. This isn't the actual caravan that was cited a couple weeks ago during the election, right? This is, is this a different one, or is this a part of it? Or? No, no, this, this is the one. This, this is, is the one, you know, okay. This, wow. This is the caravan. It originated in San Pedro Sula, Honduras, um, a city I visited a few, maybe a couple months ago. Uh, and... I, I was down in Chiapas as well at the border of Guatemala and Mexico as, as uh, this group made that border crossing. Um, and now I've come sort of rejoined in Tijuana. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's, it's an interesting story because it has been politicized so greatly, but also just the, the human stories of the people who are fleeing their countries, uh, why they're fleeing those countries and, you know, what they're looking for. And we also did a story about the asylum process in the United States how it is backlogged, um, but how the administration isn't necessarily dealing with the, you know, the nuts and bolts and the, the, the ones and the zeros of, of refining and making it more efficient, but rather kind of um, blaming the asylum seekers for their, you know, the, 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 the predicament that they're in and uh, the, the difficulties of our asylum system and the legal system and the immigration courts to adequately or to have enough space to kind of deal with all these stories and all these claims. So the show that I saw you on the other night, The Road to Asylum, is this a series? Mm-hmm. Is this, is this going to be another segment on that? Or is this something separate that you're doing right now? Because I saw the story with you following the woman and her son over the border. Yeah. They ended up in Tennessee, I believe. Yeah. Um, and then you checked in on them 
and uh, they have a court date. I don't know what the status, but is this part of that series, or is this going to be a one-off type thing for Viceland? Well, the Road to Asylum was part of the Vice on HBO weekly program. Yep. Uh, so it was a 15-minute report there. And this, what I'm doing here is for the Vice News Tonight program, both of which air on HBO. Right. Um, but this is a quicker turnaround where we're going to, in the next couple days, uh, air the piece. So yep. it's, it's, it's a different track. It's kind of confusing sometimes, but the real... Really, it's just we're trying to follow the human stories, understand the political ramifications, and see how some of the rhetoric that has been championed in the United States is starting to rub off on our neighbors to the south. Let me ask you a question. Is there any violence going on down there with the... Uh... Yeah, I'm guessing you haven't found any terrorists or people throwing rocks at you. Is that safe to say? Not yet. <laughs> uh, there, were, there was a bit of a, a video made the round of social media in Tijuana of of skirmishes between Tijuana residents and uh, supposedly Honduran migrants. Right. Um, so there, there's fear and there's anger at the government of Mexico and the government of Tijuana about their response to this crisis. But, you know, you got to, you know, Tijuana is 2 million people plus. This is at most, uh, you know, six, seven, eight thousand 8,000 people coming at once. So it doesn't necessarily have to be an overwhelming invasion as someone that's like people tend to talk about it. But the rhetoric and sort of the people's fears are pitched at the moment. Um, and so kind of unwrapping and untangling what's imagined and what's perceived is, uh, is difficult, but it's kind of what we're on the ground to try to do. So you're going to put a face to the story, and it's going to be much more human than just all the nonsense that we read about, about invasions and so forth. So do you think this will be an ongoing series or an ongoing news item that you're going to be following and, and going to various locations? Yeah, I th- yeah. I think so. I mean, I think there's, you know, the response. As more people end up in Tijuana, um, the question of where they're going to go, um, where they're going to, where they potentially could receive asylum, and, and what's next in their lives, is you know comes to the fore. And you have to realize, like these are these are families, these are um, children, these are young men as well. But they've they've walked from Honduras to Tijuana. How long is that? been like three weeks four weeks wow a long time maybe even longer um so just the journey itself is of immense sort of it's just an immense magnitude and then it fits into sort of the like migration human migration in the world today is is an issue that's facing europe uh it's facing the middle east of course facing parts of south asia so i think it's a it's an ongoing story about how people and oftentimes the most vulnerable vulnerable people are attempting to make their lives better by going to places where there is more opportunity. And so this has happened forever. It's a story of sort of humankind to some degree moving around. Uh, but these days it has an edge. Take us through what happens with the asylum now. Uh, who grants the asylum? Is it, uh, is it immigration? Is it the city that they're actually trying to get into? Yeah, well, so in the United States, the asylum is administered by um it's the department of justice how doj the immigration court and the immigration courts ultimately make decisions about who gets asylum and who doesn't okay within immigration courts uh there's case law as any court works but it, it's unique insofar as it's administered by the doj which means the attorney general is the boss of all of the immigration courts and immigration judges so Jeff Sessions, when he was the attorney general, made, you know, granted certification to a certain number of cases to kind of uh, shape the way asylum law uh, should should go going forward. Um, and specifically, he, he kind of zeroed in on claims of gang violence and right. uh, domestic violence as 
they're difficult to prove, and there's there's a category within asylum, um, asylum law called sort of membership in a particular social group. So asylum law, if you kind of go back in time, comes from our experience with World War II, uh, and after World War II, it was recognized that certain people who are fleeing government persecution uh, should have rights to come into countries where they feel feel safe and to petition, petition the government to stay to have. Um, legal standing to stay in that country. Uh, and so they, they delineated through the Geneva Convention and other, um, other conventions uh, certain categories that you kind of have to fit into, whether it's you're being persecuted on, on account of your race, political beliefs, gender, uh, etc. But then there's one that they sort of left intentionally open-ended called membership in, in a particular social group. So the kind of the way that immigration courts work is they're not only do you have to prove that you meet the criteria, you also have to convince the immigration judge that you deserve the protection as well. So it's kind of like, again, the college, you have to take the SATs and graduate high school, but that doesn't, if you take the SATs and graduate high school, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get into Harvard. Harvard still gets the shot of saying, you know what, we want you, we don't want you. So it's, it's a really complicated process that takes years, months or years, um, currently, there's a backlog of about 700,000 um, immigration cases uh, that have yet to be adjudicated or finally decided, um, and most of which are asylum cases themselves. So it's complicated, but, you know, I've talked to immigration judges, and they're, they're like, hey, the, the rule of law is there are maxims that we follow, but each individual case needs to be examined on a case-by-case basis, the facts of that case. Um, understanding, you know, what what people are fleeing from, how they can prove that they're fleeing from, and the evidentiary standards are different than, you know, other courts. Um, so it it seems like if if you talk to people who say uh, the asylum is being used as an excuse for people to enter the country illegally, they'll point to, you know, the high denial rates, especially for people of from the Northern Triangle in Central America, um, which is Honduras, uh, El Salvador. And Guatemala, but you know, and, and this is something I talked to with an immigration judge. Is that that's not kind of how the rule of law works. You know, past performance doesn't necessarily dictate future outcomes. And the way that courts work is that they ingest the realities on the ground, compare them to the the laws and the legal statutes and what they require, and make case law in in a way to account for those two two things. So they don't always match up. Um, so it it it's it's a it's a tough. Thing to understand. It's a tough thing to talk about, but it's an easy thing to kind of politicize. And I think immigration has certainly been an issue that um, President Trump has campaigned upon. It's something he sort of started his entire campaign talking about. And it's an easy way of painting, a broad, like painting in broad strokes, uh, an entire class of people who are, you know, individuals, uh, the caravan, uh, anyone really. Do you um, notice more troops at the border? I mean, do you do you see that now? Yeah, I haven't specifically reported upon on the encampments of troops. But there has been some really great work done by both Vice News, um, also the New York Times, just sort of uh, in those in those camps. What what's happening here today uh, is um, Customs and Border Patrol at the main port of entry of Tijuana and San Diego closed the port of entry to sort of fortify some of the lanes in because of fear that. Uh, or rumors, frankly, that um, migrants would try to overwhelm, the, not overwhelm, but sort of sneak through and cross and make unauthorized crossing into the U.S. So, yeah, what we're seeing is people respond, like, 
government responding and hardening borders, um, which, you know, they have the right to do, certainly. Uh, gotcha. But doesn't necessarily, the unintended consequences of that can, can, can last for a long time. So let's uh, shift if we can. I know you're down in Mexico, so it's hard to think about other things, but we just, we just had yeah, the... No, yeah, no. You know, it, does, it, fits into, it fits into a lot of the work that I've done just as a journalist, because immigration is a human rights issue, and legally speaking, it's kind of an administrative issue. It's not a, necessarily a criminal justice issue. However, you know, starting a few decades ago, there was there, there was a fusing sort of in, in the, the jurisprudence and the and, and the the rhetoric about immigration that it's about criminals. It's about pe- you need to imprison people who break the law by coming into our country illegally. Um, which, yes, it is. If you cross a border unauthorized, that's a misdemeanor on the first count and a felony on the second count. But most people, the judges give them time served. So oh. we're putting, you know. Immigrants who are in detention in the United States are effectively incarcerated for indeterminate periods of time for a crime that is either a misdemeanor or a minor felony. So, of course, there are outlier cases of people who have committed, um, you know, more serious felonies. But in the same way that the the, the war on drugs, which I kind of covered through Weedekit, uh, lumped together biases, assumptions, and sort of imperfect social analysis and policy into a punitive criminal system, like the, the fusing of the immigration system, the idea of what immigration represents and means with the criminal justice system is, is ongoing, active, and has real consequences for the lives of the people on the ground. We've talked on the show before about prison reform, private prisons benefiting the most from all of these, you know, incarcerations and the fact that all this needs to change. And are you seeing, like, child separation issues has that has that changed has that tone changed a little bit or what do you think is going to happen here if families start to cross well you know the the official sort of zero tolerance policy of family separations has ended under the immense outcry of the general public what what happened earlier this year um but there has been some saber rattling on the 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 side of the trump administration to say hey we might reintroduce that or introduce something called a binary choice where um, you can, if you cross with a child, you can either choose to have the child uh, be released in, into the custody of family members if you have them in the United States, or you can be detained together for the, the indeterminate period of time. Well, I mean, obvious, so, obviously, the the immigration courts are so backed up. You know, how much time can you be detained? And and I mean, you could be sitting in a detention center. For a couple of years, can't you? Well, yeah. I mean, yes, you can. Um, the way it's been, the way it's happened before, is that because there aren't enough beds necessarily Correct. in detention centers, uh, people can post or you know uh, post bond, bond. Be granted yeah. by a judge. Yep. And and so bond can if you pay the bond, if you're able to have family members who have the money, or if you have the money, you can you can get out and await your hearing yeah um, I'm, I'm a bondsman so i i've done cases right like on. this i've done cases where i've uh you know i've bonded out uh some people on immigration bonds and obviously mm-hmm. you can go for four five six years until your case even gets heard why these people yep. are now you know in the united states trying to fight to stay here yep exactly and and that is you like that period of time that you can be released from detention but then have your case play out in immigration court that is 
it cuts both ways. Like, I think pe- people who are like, it's an excuse, asylum is an excuse to get into the country illegally say, hey, look, it's catch and release. You catch them, release them, they do their thing, they don't show up to court. First of all, they tend to show up to court. Always show up but to court. Secondly, yeah, exactly. Secondly, um, you know, we met a man in, uh, in Honduras who kind of didn't have the option of sticking around to have his case played out. Like his case was sort of a classic uh, gang extortion case. He was a small business owner. Um, he was extorted by gangs. Uh, ultimately, his son was murdered as a result of non-payment. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, just a truly horrifying story. But when he got to the states, and he had been here, he'd been here prior and and had been deported prior. So he was he was incarcerated. He didn't. He was not, uh, or he was detained rather. He was not offered bail, but when when faced with the prospect of having to spend 18 months or longer in detention, waiting for his uh, for his case to play out, he opted to go home. Go back to there. go back, yeah. And yeah, and his family was living in hiding. They didn't have the money to continue to live in hiding. So over the course of time, like they would basically be out on the street and be vulnerable again to, to more to more gang violence they faced before. Right. So it's, it's 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 easy to say like, oh yeah, it's capture and release, but. The, the dysfunction of the immigration courts, which is to say not the dysfunction of the membership of the courts, but the, the backlog itself, isn't necessarily a reason to assume that everyone who comes to the country and, wants, and, and is released into the country pending their court cases uh, is gaming the system. So that, that's, that's kind of the, the intricacy that's, that's hard to understand. It's, it's really it's a very, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to understand on a, on a broad level. And it's an easy thing to simplify and to sort of uh, hew to ideologies. So that, that's why I find it an interesting thing to cover. And even more so, I, I'm, I'm just inter- I'm interested to see which way it plays out. Because if you, you think about the, the whole world is kind of facing this, these choices. And, um, you know, the future of how people can move around the, the, the world will be determined by what happens over the next few years. But yeah, one thing I want to say about Bond, which is actually pretty interesting, and I talked to an immigration lawyer about this, is that um, Bond, paying the Bond is a good thing in some senses for for, uh, an immigrant, an asylum seeker, because it's a contract between the federal government and the individual that they they won't be re-detained. No. Some people are let out without bond, and it's just at the discretion well, of the, right. There's the no accountability the whether to bring them back in. Right. There's yeah, no accountability so there. Is, right. So we talk about bond, and I, you know, if you think about cash bond, or I guess cash bail, and maybe I don't know the difference between those, those two things as as detrimental in some in, in some cases. There is uh, there is a silver lining, which is like, hey, we signed a contract. You can't put me back in detention um, unless you know I run afoul of the law, but. In the meantime, I can I can work. I have a temporary work permit, and and maybe more um, importantly, if I have passed the credible fear interview, and I the federal government says, yeah, you, it's more than likely that you have a credible fear of persecution at home. You're out of that credible. You're you're uh, you're removed from the environment that was threatening your life. And I think like that, the idea of asylum, we forget that the word sort of in a sense means refuge. It means a place where uh, you don't have to worry about getting killed right christian Sorry, it's, no no it's no, all no, christian we love it no no it's good no i i want to uh uh switch gears because i know you have important things to do down there but one of the things obviously you were early on catching was cannabis weed kit was mm-hmm. way ahead of its time in terms of you know not just the social issues around it with prison reform and so forth and we're finally seeing laws change there uh, exonerations and so forth um but i was just out in 
Las Vegas for the big MJ Biz conference. And uh, obviously, yeah. it's pretty exciting what's going on, other than the fact that there's way too many extraction machines that are for sale out there. I don't think you could fill. <laughs> you got those everything are from. Huh? Yeah, those, are, those are like big ticket items. Well, it was everything from like. Willy Wonka. There was actually some guy dressed as Willy Wonka in front of an extraction machine. It was like you know, making an everlasting gobstopper. But then there were the small, you know, homemade ones out of the garage. But that was pretty interesting. But just real, real quick, are you? Is there a season four coming of Weedikit, or what is your current uh, game plan there? Because I mean, if people haven't seen yeah. it, I, I, you know, I know it's on Hulu now. You can watch it. But I'm just curious what what That's your plans right. are there. Yeah, we're kind of in like a lengthy development phase for what's next for Weedikit. I think. We did three seasons, 26 episodes. We covered the criminal justice aspect of, of, of the war on drugs and how marijuana fit into that, the medical sort of advances of what we didn't understand about the plant, what we do now and what we might in the future, and, of course, sort of like the, the economics of the new industry. So we did, like, 26 stories is a lot. And in a lot of ways, what, what we try to do with Weed Kid is not like an expose or a news report. It's a it's like an emotional investigation. We really try to live with people and see things happen to them in real time. Um, and so the production challenge with that is mighty. Uh, and we're, you know, honestly, I'm sort of interested to see what happens next, because I think we chronicled that early period where people's opinions were changing, um, where laws were changing. And now that, like, the big stuff is happening, the, in my opinion, the story kind of shifts to business uh, in, in a, in a, in a way that we're sort of trying to figure out how to tell those stories. I was going to say, when you go from a black market to a lit market, obviously you just made the point businesses, real businesses are are being formed and wall street money is starting to be put at risk. You're right. We all know what that means and people are going to track it much more closely. And I think people are confusing bubble prices in stocks with where, cannabis is in terms of you know second or third inning and we're still in the second or third inning in the development right i mean 30 states now yep. maybe 32 states have some form of medical or rec at this point and growing um and we're just yep. kind of we're and we're just we're just kind of beginning so i think you were early and i think there's a lot more to be written obviously and it, it's, it's going to be great to watch you hopefully cover it still because um there are a lot of bills coming down in washington that are going to combine prison reform and cannabis reform together um yep. so 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 we're going to see many bills going forward so it's going to be a really cool time to see uh, real money come into the space. And to your point, I agree with you. That's how you and I first met, obviously, was through that channel. And um, economic benefit, the health benefit, and obviously politics and the wins. I, I'm, I'm sure when you started covering it, cannabis had a, a making up a 30% kind of approval rating in the U.S. It's up to you know, 94% for medical and 65 for rec. And I'm sure that that's yeah, changed. That's right. So. So uh, anyway, well, so what was interesting is that that change was kind of what we were chronicling and hopefully maybe even trying to push a little bit. But uh, because we were journalists, but we as sort of journalists, we believed that no one should go to prison for marijuana, uh, that it should be studied for its health benefits as much as it can, uh, that there's lost tax revenue thrown, you know, thrown around when it's, it's all black market. And, and we were trying to kind of understand, like, what is the. There's a maybe in a sense like a battle for like what happens when a um, like a, a a culture that was counterculture like a counterculture meets a mainstream culture and and I think right now it's like the counterculture isn't gone necessarily but it's it's so mainstream that that question no longer is pertinent and so we're in in some ways we're trying to find out what that next like core question is in what's happening next for for cannabis culture. Uh, but what I miss about it, frankly, and what you know, what what I what will bring you back to it, I'm sure, is it's a good news story. 
the, the, the news with cannabis is that we went from, you know, one of the first episodes we filmed was about a man named Bernard Noble who was imprisoned for, or, you know, sentenced for 13 years for the possession, simple possession of two joints or two joints worth of pot. What, what, uh, story what state, fa- what state was that? Louis- Louisiana. Louisiana. Yeah. Um, so he, so that's where we started and like where we ended is Bernard Noble's out of prison now. Uh, you know, we were we were there when Louisiana state legislator uh, sort of well, we reformed their sentencing laws a bit to account for these sorts of outrageous discrepancies and the punishment certainly not fitting the crime. And so, like, yeah, well, it's a good news story. It's moving forward. And so I think that's that's something that gives me I just hope wa- about both how our public policy can work, how even in the most divisive times, there are ideas and issues that like both sides can kind of agree on. Um, so yeah, it's a good news story that, that, that keeps hopefully getting better. Christian, before I let you go, um, I know you focus on guns as a, as a social issue, obviously immigration, cannabis, anything else that's, you know, hitting you right now or thoughts? I don't know. I want to like do like golf or something. Golf? (laughs) (laughs) Something easy? (laughs) A little easier. Well, man, thanks so much for calling in and good luck down there. And I can't wait to see the reporting from there and be, be safe and we'll, and we'll chat when you get back. Christian, thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you, Christian. That'll wrap it up for this episode of Bale Street. You can subscribe to our podcast at balestreet.com or any other service that you use to download podcasts. We'll see you next time on Bale Street. I'm Danny Moses. I'm Ira Jettleson. (laughs) 